Centuries of freedom have taught us to think in terms of continuous improvement, of an always better future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. I'm Austin Knight, and I am joined by my co-host, Matthew Howells-Barbie. Hey, Austin. Uh, Hey, everyone. We hope that you didn't miss us too much during our one-week break that we just took out, but fortunately, we have some good news. We're back, and this marks the start of Series 3. Yeah, that's right. So today is the beginning of our brand new series, and we've got a lot of really cool stuff planned for the next few weeks. Yeah, we do. In fact, we'll actually be kicking off the new series with, I would, I would say, arguably one of our most interesting interviews that we've we've done to date. Yeah, if you were listening to the last few episodes of Series 2, you'll know that we spoke about a new blockchain project from the creator of BitTorrent, Bram Cohen. Yeah, and <laughs> we... We did our best to explain the tech behind Bram's new project called Chia, uh, which I think I mispronounced multiple times during that episode where we (laughs) tried to explain it. But I don't think that we really did it the justice it deserves. So we reached out to Bram and the rest of his team to see if we could hear it from the horse's mouth, and he kindly obliged. Yeah, uh, we were super thrilled about that. But before we go into that, we're going to cover off a few bits of news first. Yeah, well, we can't really go through this episode and not mention the fact that last week was Bitcoin's 10-year anniversary. I think that was on Wednesday of last week. And it's always fun to look back at what's been achieved during kind of key milestones like this and... Me and Austin, we we pulled together a few little stats just to really highlight how far Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, as a project, as a use case, as a as a concept has really came in the past uh, ten years. So, a few quick call out stats here, and the first and most obvious points of reference really is. 31st of October 2008. This is when the Bitcoin white paper was actually published for the first time by the pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto. Whether that's a he, a she, or a they, we are yet to know and we probably will never know. But since then, Bitcoin's transactions per day and the overall price of Bitcoin's grown pretty significantly, hasn't it, Austin? (laughs) Yeah. So on the 1st of January of 2012, there were 5,809 Bitcoin transactions per day, estimated around a half a million dollar total value. So keep that in mind. Fast forward a little bit to the 31st of October 2013, and Bitcoin's price is right at about $204. Then fast forward again to the 1st of January 2014, and you're all the way up to 63,821 Bitcoin transactions per day, and that jumps that total to $56.4 million in total value. Wow, that is a big jump from pretty much just under 6,000 transactions per day to 64, let's round it up, 1,000 transactions per day. Yeah, and think back in... 
$204 USD per Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Let's, let's jump forward a few years now, right? And actually, even when you jump forward two years, 31st of October, 2015, Bitcoin's price at that point was, at the end of that day, $314. So actually, <laughs> proportionally, uh, that is a huge jump in, in price from $204. But it kind of seems like nothing when you're looking at closer to today's numbers. And when you go then to 2016, just the next year, Bitcoin's price doubles again up to 700 bucks. And the transactions per day are pretty pretty crazy at this point as well, right? Yeah. So on the 1st of January, 2017, you're talking 180,000 Bitcoin transactions per day with an estimated value of $340 million. And then if we fast forward just a little bit to the 31st of October of 2017, Bitcoin's price goes up <laughs> almost 10 times to $6,468. Yeah. And that really sparked the the, the major boom that we saw at the end of 2017, riding off the back of like the ICO boom. And really, when we started to see Bitcoin, I would say, arguably for the first time, truly hit the mainstream. It's like the, the Thanksgiving, the holiday dinners where distant relatives and co were now starting to talk about what this strange thing called Bitcoin was. And actually, on the 17th of December, 2017. That was when Bitcoin hit its all-time high. Uh, the all-time high at, at one moment, it didn't close the day on this, but the, the highest that it reached was $19,783.06. Not that we're getting too grand <laughs> uh, in USD, which is enormous uh, amount. And I think that we, I mean, I remember us talking about this at the time, Austin, we were unsure how long this consistent growth was going to go. And everyone yeah. seems to be talking this year, right? Like Bitcoin's price has crashed. Like it, it's, uh, it, it seems to just be tumbling and tumbling. Well, actually, when you go back to what you said, right? 31st of October, 2017, Bitcoin's price was $6,468. And we look at the 31st of October, 2018, one year on, like last week, Bitcoin's price, $6,317. So pretty, pretty close to that, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, an excellent observation around how the price is perhaps just adjusting and normalizing a bit. Uh, at least that would be our sort of optimistic view of this. The transactions <laughs> also went through an interesting curve. On the 1st of January of 2018, we were at 340,000, uh, or roughly 341,000 Bitcoin transactions per day at an estimated value of $3.5 billion. <laughs> so that's crazy. But then uh, on the 30th of October of 2018, that went down a little bit to 288,000 Bitcoin transactions per day with an estimated value of 808 million dollars and this sounds a, this sounds more correct to me yeah. uh, in terms of pricing and transaction volume there there was just a total fury around the end of 2017 yeah there there really was and it was hard to kind of cut through that and i mean when you look at like transactions per day it, let's just look at this in like us dollar value of total bitcoin transactions per day 
at the start of 2017, it's like 340 million US dollars worth of transactions in Bitcoin. And then at the end of October of this year, $808 million of total value. I think that that, that those transactions per day, regardless of whether you're looking at the USD value or just the total volume of Bitcoin transactions per day, I feel like that's a really good proxy for looking at how much this cryptocurrency is truly being adopted and and used on a day-to-day basis. Now, okay, this is still yeah. like trading and uh, is that transactions of people buying coffee and stuff? Okay, probably not. It's very much going to be a very, very small amount. <laughs> but it still shows uh, a huge amount of growth from, I mean, what were we saying in in... 2012, just under 6,000 Bitcoin transactions per day. And then as of last month, 288,000 Bitcoin transactions per day. Yeah, major growth. In some other interesting news, though, we have been looking at recent developments in the political space in relation to Bitcoin. So there was an interesting article within Politico that shows how Bitcoin may be having an influence in the current U.S. midterm elections. So this is super interesting. Uh, During a June Senate meeting, the uh, director of threat, a threat analysis company called Dark Tower, Dark Tower, sorry, Scott Dukecki, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, said... <laughs> that's, a, that's a challenging name to, to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he said, the greatest emerging threat of foreign funds reaching the coffers of political candidates or to be used to fund other influence operations are the increasing number and liquidity of privacy coins. This is super interesting. Yeah, this is this all starts to come round to and we'll we'll make sure that we share out in the show notes the article in Politico that talks at great detail about how cryptocurrencies are being used okay within the US midterm elections but actually in a number of elections and fundraising campaigns around the world and they're being very very difficult to trace the the origins and the sources of those and the 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 federal election commission uh, this is a u.s agency it's tasked with enforcing like campaign finance laws it decided to allow bitcoin contributions to candidates back in 2014 now at that time at least eight states plus the district of columbia allowed crypto contributions and have created some limitations or added language to their election manuals addressing kind of this particular issue. However, since then, at least seven others have actually banned cryptocurrency contributions altogether. And California were one of those, usually one of the the states to move away and create their own legislation before a lot of other states, typically speaking. But back in September 2018, they they banned all types of cryptocurrency contributions to candidates running for state office. And Frank Cardenas, the California commissioner, said, the acceptability of cryptocurrency in California elections, question mark, that day may come. <laughs> for now, it's not worth the risk. Uh, I think that's quite yeah. telling in this whole situation. 
Yeah, California's stance on this has been, uh, as you mentioned, Matt, typical to their stances on other uh, unknown areas, right? Legislate our way into paralyzation. Uh, (laughs) And what's interesting, though, is that in California, at least one federal and two state candidates, including Democratic candidate Gavin Newsom, had welcomed cryptocurrencies via their campaign sites before the ban here. And actually, Democrat Brian Ford had raised nearly half half a million dollars of Bitcoin for his unsuccessful bid for a California congressional seat this year. Uh, But then he had to field a bunch of questions from election watchdogs about where his campaign contributions were coming from. This all around the same time that this legislation was being developed. So it's a very, very crazy time. Yeah. And it seems that there's one, one state in particular, New Hampshire, and this has kind of been dubbed actually the Bitcoin capital of America. There's, uh, if you do a bit of Googling, you'll kind of see around some of this. And it's one of the, the, the few states that's actually not still to this day passed clear rules about reporting cryptocurrency contributions. And this all kind of started out where in all the way back in uh, 2012, actually, the, the then New Hampshire Republican state uh, rep was Mark Warden decided to return all of his cryptocurrency contributions that came from Europe and South Africa. I, I kind of find it crazy that even way back in 2012, yeah. some of this was was happening. And actually, in the the midterms that have that have just happened uh, during this cycle, at least three candidates running for state office in New Hampshire are actually requesting uh, cryptocurrency donations. The the, rep, uh, the, the website of uh, Caleb Dyer, which is a libertarian, former Republican running for re-election, can accept 10 different types of cryptocurrencies, including Monero. And I think this in particular is interesting because there's one aspect to taking donations and campaign funding via the likes of Bitcoin, where we can at least view via the blockchain the public addresses and trace back some of those transactions as to at least which addresses they came from. Now, things like Monero, Zcash and co that are privacy coins, which use stealth addresses, practically make these untraceable. And I think that sparks a bigger question around how we use some of these fundings Uh, within political and high-influence projects like this because it makes it very, very easy for highly influential politicians or people within uh, positions of influence to mask where they're being lobbied from and funded from, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the sort of philosophical risk that we're facing here, especially when you have the capability to accept so many Mm. different types of coins. Now, to put your mind at ease, Dyer, the Republican libertarian that was accepting uh, 10 different types of cryptocurrencies, including Monero, he has reported that he's only received $269.62 in donations. So this is... Don't spend it all at once. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're not quite dealing with the end of the world in terms of campaign contributions just yet. But from a principled perspective, it could be a problem. It's certainly something interesting to think through. And there is, you know, potentially some risk here. Uh, Cryptocurrency analyst 
Argirio said, unless regulators decide which coins politicians can and can't accept, which is there's more than 2,000 different virtual currencies that exist now in mid-October, uh, it will be hard to ensure that bad actors are not funding U.S. elections and using cryptocurrencies. And the Center for Public Integrity found that it's nearly impossible to identify actual crypto contributions in some state campaign finance reports. So this certainly is a looming issue. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think with all of the publicity that we've had, certainly since the most recent U.S. election, especially around some of the, the Brexit um, referendum and now ongoing negotiations that stem particularly around the spread of fake news, the influence of Russia and other parties, right? This is another avenue for individuals and entities to influence decisions within major political campaigns. And it's something that we definitely need to be very wary of. And I think that there needs to be very strict guidelines put in place for this. How easy it will be to enforce those guidelines and legislations is another thing. One interesting thing that uh, is probably benefiting a few players in the crypto space, in particular BitPay, is that most of the contributions going into political candidates, especially in the uh, the most recent U.S. midterm elections, they were being processed through BitPay, which is, if you haven't heard of BitPay before, it's a pretty cool service. I've actually used it myself uh, to, to pay for services via uh, cryptocurrencies, not funding political candidates, albeit, but it's similar to the likes of PayPal. And uh, they seem to be integrating a lot of their stuff on uh, each of these candidates' websites. But very interesting. I think that we're going to start hearing a lot more about this, especially, I would imagine, in the next US general election and many uh, global elections to come, because I think that it's almost inevitable that um, cryptocurrency is going to play a bigger and bigger part in all of this. Okay, that's one side. Why don't we jump into our main feature section for our first episode of Series 3. And this is where we're speaking with Bram Cohen. And for those of you that haven't heard of Bram before, he is the founder of BitTorrent. Most of you will be familiar with that. But is now the founder and CEO of a brand new blockchain project called Chia that has the modest claim of becoming a better Bitcoin. Let's find out what he has to say. Bram, thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, great to be here. Absolutely. So, Bram, we're, uh, we're super excited to dig into some of the new projects that you're working on. But first, I want to acknowledge that most of our listeners will probably have heard of BitTorrent. Uh, yeah. But could you share a, a little bit of information on how you went from creating BitTorrent to now running a blockchain project? Like what that transition was like? Oh, you know, I started BitTorrent of... A while ago now, shall we say, uh, and had been there for a long time. And that's kind of a mature business. And I started getting interested in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, now, I, I'm 
interested in the cryptocurrency space for a completely different reason than most of the people in the space are. Most of the people in the space are like, woohoo, we're going to get rich. And it's like, <laughs> I, I don't care. And this is not a subject that I find interesting. But and so I was avoiding it for a while because I, I, you know, I, I, I lived through the dot com bubble. I, I, I know this stuff. I've seen this before. But a few friends of mine eventually were like, Bram, there actually is something really technically interesting in Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll look into it. So I, I brought some people in to explain how Bitcoin works, and we discussed it, and I started getting ideas, and yeah, and had thoughts about it. And eventually I had enough thoughts that I'm like, okay, you know what, I, I think it's time for me to go do a new venture based on this. Awesome. And what, so there's there's an interesting link as well here in the sense that BitTorrent was acquired by Justin Sun, right? Who was the founder of the Tron project. Like what, uh-huh. how, how did that kind of come about? And what, what motivated you to eventually say, hey, you know, I'm, I've done enough at BitTorrent and I'm going to move yeah, on? Yeah, uh, uh, he paid money for it. <laughs> well, I guess that's a pretty good reason. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, I think that's as concise as we need to be on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a new project, Chia, that you're working on. We did a little bit of a deep dive into this in uh, our previous series, but ultimately what we were really trying to do while explain it to our listeners was also just wrap our minds around the project itself, uh, ourselves. So I, I'd love if we could use this time as an opportunity for you to kind of explain the core focus of the project and, and what you're working on. Yeah, so the idea with... Chia is to try and make essentially a second generation cryptocurrency. And it's funny because people are like, wait, isn't that Ethereum? And I'm like, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's not. Um, The idea here is to take Bitcoin for what it is, not go, uh, I'm going to go off in some crazy unrelated direction. Just take Bitcoin for what it is. What does it do well? What does it do not so well? What research has there been done on it? And really take the learnings that have happened over time and incorporate them into building something better. Uh, So this is taking the form of a few different initiatives that we're doing. Uh, The more straightforward part of it, that's in some sense a little, that's not the main focus of what we're doing just yet, is making a better scripting language, making a nicer code base, making cleaner wire protocols, all that kind of stuff. That is in some sense straightforward, or at least it's straightforward if you do real network engineering, which most of these altcoins are totally uninterested in doing. But that we're, we're making some improvements, we're doing some interesting stuff, but that's uh, not exactly part of the elevator pitch. The main focus of what we're working on right now, the thing that's notably like really new technology as opposed to reworking old things, just doing a much better job of execution on them. The thing that's really new technology we're doing is changing the consensus algorithm. So uh, we're still using a Nakamoto consensus. It's like one of the goals of it is to make the whole thing much less wasteful. And, uh, you know, I say this and people are like, oh, you're using proof of stake. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not using proof of stake. We're using this thing called a blockchain you might have heard of. (laughs) It's an actual (laughs) word that actually means something. It's not just a slogan. There's this thing where there's a blockchain. There's like two histories. And you, if you get into an argument about what the current state is, state of the database is you compare the weights of the histories and the greater weight wins that that's that's what a blockchain is and that's what we're using we're we're keeping that fundamental approach to the whole thing and getting a very very secure very distributed database out of that where a proof of stake system 
even if you get it to work, which is a pretty dubious thing, uh, it is fundamentally uh, nowhere near as decentralized as this type of as a Nakamoto consensus uh, database is. So th that's my righteous rant uh, <laughs> about how uh, how we're actually using blockchains. Now, in terms of what we're doing, it turns out it's very, very hard to get away from uh, proofs of work uh, in the way that Bitcoin does them. In fact, you must have something that for a sufficiently broad definition of proof of work uh, is still proof of work. Inherently, it has to be hard to make an alternate chain that has a high weight. Fundamentally, the network as a whole needs to be working on this weight of a chain, and the weight of the chain needs to reflect the collective amount of resources that the network as a whole put into it. And there needs to be something there. There needs to be some resource that's getting, in some sense, measured. And there are a lot of requirements about the way this has to behave. So uh, in Bitcoin, basically, the thing that's going into this is electricity. You're burning electricity, and to some extent, you're making specialized hardware. So there's costs of fabrication of specialized hardware, and there's costs of electricity going into building this thing. And if you try and get far away from that, it winds up being that you usually just kind of fail. People have talked about making these things ASIC resistant, and the general feeling, not absolute consensus, but the general feeling among core developers these days is that ASIC resistance is actually a bad idea because you will eventually fail. And that's a bad thing. If you make it expensive to make custom hardware for your traditional proof of work, what is inevitably going to wind up happening is for a while no one will make custom hardware and then one day someone will and the problem is as soon as somebody does they put a massive ridiculous capital investment in this and this is a tremendous disincentive a huge startup costs for anyone else to make a competitor to them and you have this very very strong tendency for there to now be a monopoly over the hardware manufacturer which is specifically what you didn't want that's the opposite of what you wanted and we're seeing that a lot even at the moment right i i don't know if you've followed like the the, the sire project and all of the stuff that's gone down with with yeah. Bitmain and obelisk and... yeah sire had some skullduggery <laughs> in that one which i i won't get into here you guys should cover that but not for me um <laughs> yeah I... we actually touched on that at the end of our last uh, series and went into that in quite a bit so it's a nice tie-in but i think that is certainly what you're saying is not isolated just to the the sire project this is just a fundamental economic yeah. issue in the incentive yeah, model of it. And 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 Saya wasn't even trying to be um, ASIC resistant mm -hmm. per se. They were just doing something different. The consensus these days, not consensus, the, the majority opinion these days is what you want is the opposite. You want to be ASIC friendly. You want it to be that the capital costs of building your ASIC hardware should be as low as possible so that there's a competition in the ASIC in the mining hardware space, and the only real way to do that is to make the stuff cheaper. So that and this has a lot going for it. A little bit of advice, if anybody wants unsolicited advice, if anyone out there <laughs> is actually having to make a decision about what proof of work algorithm they want to use, it turns out the best thing to use today is of what you can just do, like right now, right this minute, is SHA three iterated a hundred times. 
SHA-3, it turns out, is very, very well designed to be straightforward to accelerate in hardware, like as an intentional design goal. It is by far the biggest winner there, and you are not going to beat that. And iterated 100 times in order to stop ASIC boost and anything vaguely related to it. If you iterate 100 times, then this little bonus that you get in the beginning of the first or the end of the last round is, you know, divided by 100. So that that's the simple advice about ASIC friendly proofs of work that you could do today if you're doing that. Now, that's not what we at Chia are doing. Uh, what we at right. Chia are doing is much more far afield than that. Uh, so like I was saying, you do need to use some kind of a resource here. And there's a very limited set of things to do. People have all these crazy ideas of like making useful proof of work or using, I don't know, making something super specially designed for GPUs or blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's attempts at making memory hard proof of work, which basically wind up just trying to be ASIC resistant again. None of these things really work. And they all, even if they do work, they still boil down to using up electricity and don't really change the game all that much. So uh, I have uh, much higher aspirations than that. So ideally you want something that's not wasteful. Uh, and because there needs to be a resource here, it must in some sense be wasteful. But what you can try and do is waste something that's already wasted. Find some resource that people already have in mass quantities that they're not doing anything with, that they can do their work with at essentially no marginal cost. Uh, on what they're doing to what they're doing with it. So there's exactly one resource which fits the bill here, which is storage capacity. There's huge amounts of storage capacity out there that some constant factor, something like half or something of all storage capacity in the world at any one given moment isn't being used because everyone gets more than they need right now and it gradually gets filled up. People have a safety buffer there. If you if you need any clarification for anything I say, by the way, just feel free to ask. Of, of course, yeah, we'll. I I feel like you're yep. in a good flow, so we we have uh, okay. interrupted. Uh, okay, good. This is good. And I, I should clarify a distinction here. There's a distinction between proof of space, where you're merely showing that the space was allocated to this thing, versus proof of replication. Uh, what what I'm not doing is making it so that there's a system where people can upload stuff, and the fact of that upload is then. Uh, verified uh, in the mining process and people get rewarded for it. That has a lot of deep and fundamental problems with it, starting with requiring ludicrous amounts of bandwidth, like far, like the bandwidth is equal to the storage, which is insane. And, and then there's what a lot of the, a lot of projects that are focused on kind of sharing files across yeah. uh, like blockchain protocols. Yeah, some of the, so doing that uh, so pr proving replication as part of a smart contract, just so someone can say, oh, here, see, see, I still have it, and paying someone for proving that they still have it, that's a relatively straightforward thing to do. Using it as your mining operation, I believe, is a fundamentally bad idea. It's not a good idea. Right. So I, I, I won't dive into that, but, but <laughs> implicitly I'm going to talk about some of the issues that come up, uh, all of which apply to that and then some. So in principle... Doing proof of space makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's like, hey, look, lots of resources. Hey, maybe we can use them with no extra electricity. They're just storage. Storage, as long as it's just storing, isn't using electricity. Uh, let's do this. And I'm far from the per first person to come up with this idea. Now, <laughs> <laughs> the devil is in the details. It, 
it's one thing to hand wave and say, okay, we're doing this. Now, for proofs of work, for regular electricity based proofs of work, you can throw together basically any random bullshit and it will be a functional proof of work. It doesn't really matter that much what the details are. So long as it's cryptographically secure, basically any hash function will be fine. Uh, and you could just throw crap on it. It really doesn't matter. That's not true of proof of space at all. There's a, a list of issues uh, that start turning up. It really kind of centered around the fact that it needs to be that for proof of space to work properly, not only do people not need to use lots of electricity in order to uh, get it, gain advantage, it needs to be impossible for them to use extra computational power to gain advantage. And that's really kind of a tall order. Uh, people are clever. <laughs> people can figure out lots of things that they can do. So there are a few big ideas about how to do this. This is going to get a little into the weeds here, but I will sure. try to high-level summarize. One of the countermeasures to these problems that happen, uh, to it's called uh, grinding attacks and also long-range attacks. You have this problem that someone can just rewrite all of history since Genesis, and because their capacity now is much greater than the capacity in the past was, maybe their long-range attack uh, technically is supposed to win. Uh, you also get problems uh, where someone just in the short run is trying lots and lots of versions of the history and just picking out the one which works best for them. So uh, in terms of countermeasures to do this, one of them is you make your proofs of space be canonical. So when someone has a proof of space, they have no simple way of uh, messing with it a little bit and making another valid proof of space that has about the same uh, work difficulty but is not byte for byte identical to the old one. This is... Uh, the same kind of a problem as like SegWit addresses. Uh, right. There's also this technique where you throw in uh, proofs of time, uh, more technically accurately called verifiable delay functions. There's this particular way of mixing them in, so, which has the effect that uh, someone, if they're like doing a long range attack, can redo like 10 years worth of history, but to make a new 10 year long history at their full capacity that they have uh, will require 10 real wall clock years for them to use, to to accomplish. What's actually happening here is they are extending an alternate history while the legitimate chain, uh, the legitimate network is extending the legitimate chain and the rate at which weight is getting added to the legitimate chain is greater than the rate at which weight is getting added to their uh, alternative history. So they're continually falling behind. And these proofs of time that you're talking about work hand in hand with the, the proof of space kind of concept within this? Uh, yeah, they do. The blockchain format alternates between the two of them. And there, there are particular, very fiddly, tricky things that need to be done exactly right uh, in order to make it so that work difficulty resets work properly and so that you don't have uh, grinding attacks on the whole thing. And it's important that the uh, verifiable delay functions also be canonical. There's uh, quite a few very, very technical things we've been working on to get this to all work properly. <laughs> so speaking of proofs of space and proofs of time, now that we kind of understand these concepts, just theoretically, how, how would you plan to avoid a situation where large companies could come in and dominate the, the Chia network in the same way that companies like Bitmain have done with Bitcoin? Like, for example, j instead of buying up a bunch of huge mining servers, they could buy up like a warehouse full of hard drives and dominate the network that way. 
Yeah, so there, there's a, a few parts of this. This is more an economic thing in it than anything else. So to answer that question, uh, let's just take it as a given. Let's assume that uh, we at Chia have done our job here and that it really legitimately is just all about hard drives. Uh, just assume that that's a given, that this is the most maximally ASIC-friendly thing you could ever possibly have, that it's gone to the other side of it's not even ASICs, it's just storage media. Right. Uh, because that's kind of nice, actually. It, it turns <laughs> out anything that can do proof of space, uh, if you could make something that did a better job of doing proofs of space, you could sell it as a hard drive. So, <laughs> <All right. laughs> so what's happened there is there's already a very large diversity in uh in essentially ASIC manufacturers. There's already a competition in hard drive manufacturing. And there's already lots of resources out there and they're already very widely distributed. The, the storage is a huge, huge industry and lots and lots of different kinds of players have extra storage capacity just sitting around that they can go ahead and farm with. We're calling it farming instead of mining because it acts rather differently uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how it behaves. So there are two reasons why you get the, these big centralizations in, in proofs of work. One of them is centralization around uh, fabrication of the ASICs, which just doesn't really apply here. There's a, yeah. uh, there's a bit of a thing for the verifiable delay functions, which I can get into if you want. That, that's pretty deep in the weeds. <laughs> and uh, also, some places have better ROI than others. Some people have like very, very cheap sources of electricity that other people simply don't have, and hence have an advantage in mining because of that. Where with farming, it doesn't work that way. If you've got a drive, you've got a drive. No one has some better location or source of electricity or something for just letting this drive sit there. So there's no kind of real arbitrage opportunities in, in, in that to a certain extent. Uh, right, right. And th there's another thing going on here, which is there's huge amounts of excess capacity that's already out there that has essentially no marginal cost to go ahead and farm off of. And because of that, uh, the farming rewards are going to be gravy money to people who are doing it. And most likely, given the huge quantities of otherwise unused storage space out there and the very extremely minimal requirements to actually start farming off of it, what's most likely going to happen is the reward per byte that you get from farming is going to be less than what you paid for the stuff to begin with because there's so many resources being thrown at that this because why not? Right. No cost to go claim these rewards. So what that's going to do is make it in the long run that if you go ahead and buy a hard drive to farm off of it, you're going to get farming rewards, but they're going to be less than what you paid for for the hard drive. Okay. And so what's the, with that in mind, what is the incentive for for farming? How do how do you counterbalance that piece? Oh, the, the farming rewards are paid in Chia. I see. It, it's, it's a lot like Bitcoin. It's, you know, <laughs> the rewards are paid out in the, tokens that it itself is uh, keeping track of. Right. So it seems like what, what I'm taking from what you're saying around the way in which you can maintain this decentralization within Cheer is that yeah. with proof of work and in particular with like GPU and ASIC mining, you've got, first of all, uh, a ton of competition out there, but you've also got the fact that you can gain massive efficiencies based on one, your location, two, being able to just build out an ASIC miner that basically obliterates any GPU miner that's that's currently on the network. With storage, 
it seems to be just a lot more established as a technology and there's there's not like an asic equivalent right of in the respect of mining right for storage would that be a fair assumption yeah you've removed two of the sources of centralization from the system and you've and you're leveraging an exogenous thing you've removed uh, centralization around manufacturing and you've removed centralization around cheap electricity and you're leveraging this extra thing which is people already happen to have a lot of this and it's already widely distributed across a large number of different actors great that sounds awesome. Well, Bram, this has been incredibly interesting. And honestly, you've done, obviously, a much better job of explaining this project than me and Austin uh, did in our previous series. But how can how can our listeners learn a little bit more about Chia and also maybe get involved, get up and running and get started with getting involved in the project? You uh, People who are interested can go to Chia.net and we have materials uh, talking about the project, uh, some talks by me and things. There are two things that we have out there right now that people might be really interested in. Uh, the one I'm really trying to pump is we have our VDF competition. So we have $100,000 in total prize money that we're giving away in January to the best entrance to our VDF competition. This is open to the public. It involves writing software and stuff, but anybody can do it. The materials are there for doing it. It involves some really interesting math, some hackery implementation stuff, uh, should be fairly accessible to people. But we, one of the primitives that we're using is uh, the proof of time, the verifiable delay functions, and we have a prototype of that ready now, and we're trying to make sure that we have the best implementation of it possible and have a good handle on the necessary security parameters for it. So we're giving away cash prizes for people making faster implementations and breaking the largest security parameter they possibly can on the thing. And all the materials necessary for you to go about working on that are available on the website now, and we're actively supporting people who want to come in and ask questions about it as well. Uh, another library that we've put up is our BLS signatures library. Uh, Schnorr signatures are kind of a big thing in Bitcoin these days uh, because they're an easier to deal with signature format that supports aggregation in a really nice way. Uh, BLS signatures are even better for that because they support non-interactive aggregation, that if someone has a bunch of signatures and public keys, they can just kind of add them all together to make an aggregated uh, signature and public key uh, across all of them, and they don't need to be the ones who had the original private keys. And this is really handy for a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of things in terms of like only having one aggregated signature per block and making it so that for a whole bunch of protocols, if you are doing a multi-sig, you're not giving away the fact that it was a multi-sig in your final signature on the blockchain, it just looks like an ordinary signature. Uh, this is, so this is a really useful thing, and we have a library up for that that a few people actually outside of Chia are also helping develop as well right now for use in their projects. We want it to be a standard uh, format across the entire space. Awesome. We'll make sure that we share out the links to both of those in the show notes, and we'll give that some love across social media as well. And once again, both from myself and Austin Brown, thanks for taking the time out. We know you're really busy, and all the best with the Chia project. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
If you loved this episode and want to show both myself and Austin your appreciation, we'd love it if you could spend some of your time adding a quick review on the iTunes store or your favorite podcasting platform. You can also check out and visit us at thecoinoffering.com. Follow us on Twitter at the coin offering and you know what you want to just shoot us a quick email chat to us make suggestions tell us how terrible we are send us an email at podcast at thecoinoffering.com thanks and hope you enjoy the next episode the contents of the decrypting crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.